Hi, I'm Mayor Steve Adler. Welcome to the very first episode of Walk With Me Austin. It's a podcast where each week we're going to talk about what's going on in Austin, about the issues that really matter. I'll give you as, as close to a behind-the-scenes look as I can, and I'm just really looking forward to starting this. We want to hear from you. We want to answer your questions. So submit your questions by emailing me at steve.adler at austintexas.gov. You can also get me through social media at, at Mayor Adler. For our launch, we've got a really special host, good friend of mine, Josh Jones-Dilworth, to lead the discussion today. Josh is one of those entrepreneurs, connectors, innovators, just gems and, and treasures in our city. Thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation. I'm grateful to be here. First, before we get started, this is the, it's the first episode of the pod. Pretty exciting. <laughs> How'd you come up with the name Walk With Austin? You know, inspired by the music, by the piece done by Austin artists, produced by Austin artists. At the early part of the pandemic, when the world was just upside down and you were looking at these black and white pictures of cities deserted all over the country, the artists in Louisville got together and created a song for their city and then challenged other cities to see what they could do. And certainly any kind of music challenge is going to perk Austin's ears. I knew we could be best. So we gathered together artists and we, in the city, and they created the song, Walk With Me Austin. It's a, a reflection of the moment. Uh, it was intended to be really an, an anthem to unite the community. If you look back at significant events in history, Guthrie, there just always is an anthem for really trying times. And this was our song. It so incredibly well represents the, the diversity of people and talent and musical genres in the city. It acknowledges the, the crisis, the hardships everybody was uh, facing. But it was also, at a moment in time, a real symbol of hope. It was an opportunity to actually pay artists at a period of time when it was really tough to find gigs. You know, it had that practical benefit as well. But you know, it just, I find and have found it inspiring to me as we've gone through this entire past year, as hard as it's been, because really there are so many traumas coming so fast at everybody that the only way to be able to get through this is with a mindset of, oh, I'm not in this alone. We're in this together. We'll do what it takes. Walk with me. It's awesome. one of those roles for music that is so classic to say things that we can't say to express emotions we're feeling and the entire pandemic and throughout 2020 i was thinking like where's the protest music <laughs> right where's the music that marks this moment it wasn't happening and i think walk with me genuinely captures the zeitgeist and what i think is extra cool about it is i think we're going to be listening to and using it 10 and 20 years from now it's not just so isolated to the moment the messages are very in my opinion classic and classic to austin's soul as you often like to say there's sort of a yeah collective kind of ethos about austin that that song really expresses it's it, yes it was an anthem for that moment but i think it's also a great theme song for the city overall and as any anthem would need to be to really capture what it is that's special about a place. And, you know, it was it was started with that kind of design in mind. But it's also just really good. When it, when it first came out, I must have listened to it several hundred times in that first weekend. It was just, it just was a great piece. It's so awesome. And if you're listening, you, you just should go right now, listen to the song, walk with me. It'll make you proud of your city. Okay, 
<laughs> we're going to talk about homelessness. Surprise. Hey. And look, there's a lot to cover. And I, so I think our, I want to put our lis- listeners in the shoes of someone who's coming to this issue relatively fresh and is seeing what they're seeing on the streets. They're hearing what they're hearing with their friends and their family and on social media. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of emotion. It's heartbreaking. This one's got all the feels for everybody. And so I wonder if you could just start um, by talking about what's going on with the unhoused and homeless in Austin. Let's break this down so that people understand what's at stake. Like today, when this comes out, it's the first day of early voting. Like what's being done right now? What is the strategy? Does the city have a strategy? What's being done right now? Walk us through just the basics of the situation. Well, let's start with what everybody sees. So let's start with the tents. Great. And it is jarring to see the tents and it's jarring to see poverty. And let's just say out loud and and real loudly that no one wants anybody camping anywhere in the city. So the fact that there are tents up in our city is not right. The fact that there are people in our city that don't have a place to go is not right. And and the tents are just are, are symptomatic of that. The challenge is not the tents. The challenge is that we don't have places where people can go, that we actually have people that are living in our city that that can't afford a place to be, and they are literally out on our streets. And we don't want that, and we don't want the tents, and and we need to get the people out of the tents and out from under the highways and into housing. What we do know is that if we don't see the tents— go back a year and a half and you didn't see the same kind of tenting that you see now, those people were still here. <laughs> it's not like they, they suddenly manifested themselves. So they were in places where you couldn't see them. They were in the woods. They were in the, the streams. We need to make the conditions in any campsite better than they are for however long they're here. Hopefully it's short and we can close them down. But imagine that same campsite in the woods where it's not being picked up every week or two weeks. And in fact, it hasn't been picked up for years. Imagine that condition in that campsite and the lives that the people are living there in places that people can't see. Women that are getting routinely abused because they are, they're like, they're lost. Everybody is hidden. I was on the board of SAFE for years and there's such a high comorbidity rate between Um, homelessness and sexual abuse. It's just, it's heartbreaking and it's uncanny and it's clear and it's just, it's a multidimensional issue. Right. So it begins with the camp, the tents that we see, it's bad, don't want that. We want to get people into housing. And the question is, how do you do that and when Mm -hmm. do you do that? And you asked the question, is there a plan? Well, there were, we, we haven't had a good one because there were two things that we were lacking. The first one was the united purpose on what a plan would be. We have some people in our city that want to focus on just ending what we see. Sweep it under the rug. Sweep it under the rug, move it out to camps at the perimeter of town so we don't have to deal with it. Let's just put everybody into a single space. Let's just move them from where they are when they interact with me. Now, I know that you and I are on the same page on this issue, but I the part of that perspective, that sweep it under the rug perspective, or at least where it comes from that I understand that I – is the – is as we watch those tents and we drive by those tents every week, you see it become worse and you see it become more entrenched. And you ask the question, like, 
is this permanent? They're starting to look more permanent. And that starts to make me think this isn't just a temporary problem. Maybe this is just what Austin is now. And that makes me sad. It makes me embarrassed. It makes me angry. And so I think part of the fixation on tents, even though that's just a symptom and not the sort of actual problem is that it just you can see visually the entrenchment and the how it's getting worse and it's just it's so visceral and absolutely unacceptable having the tents there that people can see is absolutely unacceptable what we've seen over the last year has really been exacerbated by the pandemic so the cdc in dc has told us over the last year during covid If you have an encampment, don't move it. Because their advice was if you start moving those camps around, it's going to cause increased transmission of the virus. Your whole community is going to be more at risk. So at this time when camp and tenting was first appearing, we then rolled into the pandemic and we had this entire year where it has visibly grown as well. Not to even mention that if you were on the edge economically, over the last year, you have very likely fallen further. And the this has been a devastating pandemic in a lot of different ways. But one of them is if you're on the edge of homelessness, it got a lot more challenging to get yourself back up. And so I think we're seeing numbers expanding just because of what's happening macroeconomically, what's happening in public health and what's happening culturally, too. Could be. But we don't we say that anecdotally. We don't actually have confirmation of numbers. But I see the same thing that, that everybody else is, is seeing. And no one should get comfortable with right. that. No one should get used to that because that is absolutely wrong. And what the city has done, what the community has done over the last year and a half in response to the tanning has not worked. We need to do better than what we are doing now. Two obstacles have stood in the way. We haven't been able to get people to agree what to do. So we have some people that are saying, let's just move this into better temporary emergency places that are not here. Because even putting somebody in a sanctioned campsite somewhere will be better than sleeping in a sleeping bag. And that's absolutely true. Other people say, rather than invest the money in that emergency situation, because that doesn't really help anybody, they're still living in, in, in horrible conditions. Let's invest that money in permanent supportive housing, more more permanent situations. The problem with that, of course, is it costs more than the first approach and it takes yes. longer to do. And those two camps, both of whom have legitimate things to say, both of them have legitimate pieces of what is an overall system dealing with homelessness in our community have never sat down at the table and said, you know something, even though I want to really focus on the campsites and I want to start closing down encampments, I understand that only works if I move someone into an emergency situation and there is a housing exit that's going to pull them out of wherever it is I put them to get them into a permanent supportive period of time. So I'm willing to not only say, let's do the emergency stuff, but you have me 100% with you to actually get the resources to right. do the back end stuff. The flip side of that, the people that were uh, only interested in the long-term resources and the long-term plan have to sit at the table and actually look at what it is that's happening that's in right. our city and saying that does not work either. <laughs> so I'm willing to also spend my capital, my political capital, my time in dealing with the immediacy of the issues we're dealing with. Never before until really, literally, the past three months and quite frankly, just last week with the announcement of what was happening at the summit, have we had the Chamber of Commerce and the Downtown Austin Alliance locked arm in arm 
with Echo, which is our service provider. Which, for those of you listening, is a big deal. Okay, so like that doesn't happen, and it happened, and it is happening, and it's very, very exciting. And with and with the the criminal justice folks and the homes not handcuffs, never happened. And what was the key never success happened. factor for getting everyone together like that? Finally? You know, I have to give credit to the Downtown Austin Alliance and the Chamber and to the service providers who got together in November and said. We've got to do something different. It's We're not the, – the, the traditional battles we've had over this are not getting us to where we need to go. Let's come up with a really simple, small trust-building exercise that we can work hmm. together. And into that conversation, which was actually a facilitated conversation, could have been like marriage counseling, <laughs> facilitated conversation. Expert came in to help those parties talk to one another. They invited me to participate. They invited a few other people to participate in this facilitated conversation. And what became apparent over the months of November and December was that there was actually significantly greater alignment than anyone imagined. And the thought of doing a small trust-building exercise and demonstration turned into everybody looking at each other and saying, you know something? We can actually do this. I love that. We can do the whole thing. And that conversation then in December started, turned into January, and more people started getting pulled into the to the group. And then we started, and that's the first challenge, right? How do you get everybody on the same page so that people will start working together? The second challenge was, if you're actually going to do this, it's actually expensive to do. Yep. I mean, it takes a lot of money. Super expensive. It takes a lot of resources. Where are the resources supposed to come from? So when you talk about housing thousands of people, it is expensive thing to do. And then the COVID relief package that the president lays out turns out to be a 1.9 trillion dollar package. And it every indication is that it's going to be dollars that come to cities and counties and communities with very little direction other than recover. Do what you need to do. Recover well. Love it. And as I looked at other cities uh, and other counties around the country, more and more of them were beginning to say, well, let's not use this COVID relief money the way we did a year ago when we were parceling it out in small pieces all over the city because we were putting tourniquets on, on open wounds. We're in a different place now. The economy is beginning to come back. Things are beginning to get more in place. What if we took those dollars and actually said, let's not cut it up into pieces. Let's do the kind of one-time significant investment that could be truly generational. Transformational community investment that candidly isn't possible very often in Austin because of our tax situation and what we're allowed to do by the state. So it's like only every once in a while do you get to do stuff like this. You, you say every once in a while, I say never, when, whenever before, and whenever will this happen again? So in this moment in time, it's like the stars have aligned. We have an alignment on direction and path. We actually have resources if this is truly the challenge in the community we need to hit. And what happened last week is after another round of facilitated conversations, outside person coming in, but now 22, 25 people on, on a growing leadership group and 200, 300 people on a broader plenary group. Uh, a summit uh, chaired by Lynn Meredith, who has just wonderfully stepped out in, in, in front of this, actually has now presented to the community a plan that says, this is the path we follow to house 3,000 people in three years. This is what it costs. 
This is where the money needs to come from. This is how we measure success over time. And it begins with immediately rehousing people that yep. are encampments in our city. Yep. It ties with the heel resolution from the city council. It has us taking 100 people out of encampments that we're looking at right now and housing them by June, doubling that number by August. So there's a real plan. So, and if I go talk to Lynn, I go talk to the chamber, I talk to the Downtown Austin Alliance, are they, are you painting an unnaturally rosy picture of this? Are they gonna say the same thing? Do we really have a unified front finally? I am reading their press release and that's exactly where we are right now. This is that moment in time. If the community actually says, Let's do what it takes to get this done. Well, so at exactly at this moment, when the stars are aligning and there's a generational opportunity, along comes this thing called Proposition B. Tell our listeners how they should vote. Well, let me first say <laughs> that regardless of what happens with Proposition B, and there's legislation up at the state legislature to do a statewide ban on camping, regardless of what happens, what we need to do in this community is exactly the same. The plan is laid out in the summit to house 3,000 people in three years and immediately start taking people out of encampments and putting them into how That's what we need to do regardless. Okay, that said, I'm urging people to vote against Prop B. Prop B doesn't do anything to get someone in a home or to get someone mental health services or substance use assistance. The only thing that Proposition B does is add a criminal penalty to somebody who is camping in a public place, and which means that you have this universe of people that have no place to be, and wherever they are, they're breaking the law. And, and really, that takes us back to where we were a year and a half and, and before. In, in 2016, in, those, in about that time period, we wrote 16,000 tickets. Mm. As you might imagine, very few of those 16,000 tickets for this people showed up in court the following Thursday to pay the fine, which means a bench warrant issued for their arrest, which means six months later when the community actually had them positioned to get a job or to get an apartment, they didn't qualify because now they have a criminal record. It would be one thing if a police officer could go up to someone and say, hey, you can't be here. And if you don't leave, I'm going to give you a ticket or I'm going to arrest you. And when the person looks at the officer and says, okay, where do I go? She gathers up her stuff. She says, officer, mm. please don't arrest me. Please don't put mm. me in jail. Look, I'm moving. I'm gathering up my stuff. Where should I go? Help me. What do I do? And the officer's answer is, ma'am, I'm afraid I don't know where you should go. I just know you can't be here. But wherever she goes, under Proposition B, she will also be subject to getting a fine and being put in, in jail. The, the, we Criminalizing people who don't have homes is not the answer because it doesn't help. I remember that when you told me about that the first time, the criminalization and also the cost of putting people in jail eventually and the cost of policing that, like just that's where the cost savings come from, first of all. But I just remember I didn't realize how homelessness in Austin relates to the criminal justice system and the inequities therein and how connected those two issues are and why we don't want to police it this way. And it was a big aha for me because I didn't understand any of that. That was that's the part I think that most people in the public don't totally connect is how this relates to our police and how this relates to our laws. Well, you know, when, when you don't see it, you can't evaluate it, you can't measure it, you can't do anything about it, but you're absolutely right. It is expensive to get people in homes. 
But the other expense number, the, the cost of not doing that, the 250 people that are most chronically homeless in our city, experiencing homelessness in our city, the 250 people, that means the people that are our frequent flyers in, in jail or emergency rooms that are taking the attention on our streets, mm -hmm. each one of those 250 people are costing us $220,000 a year. Wow. That's $50 million <laughs> for those 50 people. And at the end of spending that $50 million, they are no closer right. to being in a home. They are no closer to getting services. They're no closer to actually being in a better place. There has got to be a better way than that. Again, I will say, you know, properties coming up, my sense is 75% of people in this city would rather there be a choice other than voting yes on Proposition B or the status quo. A third way. And they're looking at it and saying, I don't like either of these choices, but these seem to be the only two choices I have. People would come to me and say, where's the third choice? And I would say, we don't have one we can execute yet because we don't have the resources to do what it takes, and we don't have an agreement yet on everybody as to what it is we need to do. But it sounds like we're close. I mean, We're there now. We are there. And it got and it's laid out now. What we're missing now is the next piece, which is the the revenue piece. Now, a lot of the money that the city and and the housing authority are already putting into play, we can turn to this and use that money. For you can get this started. Plan. And then beyond that, the city has this federal money that's come in. The county has this money that's come in. And I think both the city and the county need to step forward and say, okay, this is the city's priority. Our challenge is of a scale. We can actually do something about it. I mean, I don't even know what you do if you're in L.A. Our last point in time count, we had 2,700 people on our streets on a given night. Los Angeles, over 43,000. L.A. County, over 70,000. Seattle, smaller city than we are, five or six times as many people experiencing homelessness. As much as it is that we're seeing tenting now, the one thing our community should remember, our homelessness challenge, about average for the country. I mean, we're at a scale where we should, given our economy and everything that's happening right in the city, be we able to fix. handle it. So the city and the county need to step forward with the federal dollars, and then we're going to start turning to the foundations and to the philanthropists in town. And we're going to say, look, if your local governments are coming in at this incredibly resolved way to fix this, won't you join in this? What else are you giving in this community over the next three years that is as important and timely as being part of a larger community effort to resolve this? Between us all, between the businesses and the philanthropists and the government, we can actually turn Austin into one of those few cities where we've reached equilibrium. We have a system that's set up to handle people as they fall in and out of homelessness so that homelessness in our city is rare and it is infrequent and it's non-reoccurring. And that's what we need to do. And I think we're, we are primed to do this regardless of what is happening in the political world around mm, us. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. I, there's one last question I want to ask. And 
I think it's so cool because you're part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors and because you've chaired that group and have relationships with these mayors of all these other cities. When you talk to Garcetti, for example, what does he say about L.A. and what they've done right and what they've done wrong? It doesn't seem like really anyone in America is getting this right. Certainly Austin maybe has the opportunity to set a precedent about what sort of a system like you're describing might look like and how it might be funded. But what do other mayors say to you when you're calling, talking over Zoom or previous to the pandemic talking about this issue, what advice do other cities have for us given the victories and the mistakes they've experienced? Well, you know, I I talk to other mayors about this challenge all the time because everybody is dealing with this to to some varying degree. Houston actually is one of the cities that's doing it better than others. They started out really making the concerted investments in this 10, 15 years ago, Mm. started getting tens of millions of dollars from HUD with pilot programs to deal with this. So they were one of the early, most significantly funded. But they set up their system in their community back then. So they're now 10 years ahead of where we are in Austin and we need to catch up. But I did. I went out to the cities that had the worst challenges. I went out to Portland and Seattle and L.A. to visit with the mayors and the local service providers, not to learn what they were doing because, my God, you just saw the (laughs) the numbers they had, but to ask them from their perspective, given what they did not end up in a good place, what do you wish you had done 10 years ago that you did not do that you think had you done it, you would be in a different place now? And the answer they gave me was exactly the same. They said, there is no easy path other than getting people into housing. Hmm. And the earlier you do it, the earlier you get to equilibrium, the earlier you're going to get to a place that is manageable financially. If you ignore this, if you hide this, if you send your community experiencing homelessness into the woods and into the streams and get another six or eight or ten years where people don't see them, when, when that becomes so big that they can no longer be contained and it spills out into your community, the scale of the challenge will be so large that you can't do anything about it. And I can remember being with Garcetti, Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles. And, and he said that to me. And then he looked at me and he said, now remind me, how many people did Austin have in its last homeless, homelessness census, its point in time count? And I said, 2,700. And he looked at me and he started laughing. And he said, make me mayor of Austin, Texas. I can end homelessness. And we'll keep you. We're just fine. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I love Alan Graham of Community First's line, I think, pretty frequently. He says, the cause of homelessness is catastrophic loss of community. But it turns out that the solution to homelessness is housing. <laughs> it's actually that simple in many ways. It is. And, and that's and I really like Alan, too, and respect him so much. In fact, Diane and I have been personal contributors to community. For a long time. For, and it is community associated with housing. Different people, as you might expect, who are experiencing homelessness, want different things. And they value different things. And what we need to provide in our community is choice to people so that they can find the situations that Mm. are comfortable for them so that they then get off the streets and they're able to put their lives back together again. So lots of great organizations, Community First, Caritas, Salvation Army, the other one's Foundation. People come to me and they say, so is Alan Graham's the right answer? Or is the governor's Camp Esperanza the right answer? Or is what Foundation Community 
Is it which one is the right answer? It's all the right answer. All the right answer. Awesome. And it all, it's, it all builds on itself. It's a system that has to be put together. And the problem in Austin is that we have too many people working in silos, not joining together the elements. None of the elements are big enough, and they all need to scale. But we have to put together a system, and our system isn't working. They said, the facilitator for the summit said, every system you look at is perfectly designed for the outcome it achieves. Mm. Which is absolutely right. <laughs> so if you don't like the outcome you're achieving, then you have to change the system. And that's what that's what we need to do in, in Austin. And now that everybody has come to the table and worked on this, I think we have a very specific path, very specific cause, very specific timeline. And now we just need to hold ourselves accountable. The other part that I'm really excited about, I think, is the sort of master plan for the state hospital and the collaboration with Dell Men and what Dr. Straskowski is doing. Like, that's not going to come online for quite some time, but that seems to be sort of a leg of the stool as well. Do you agree? No question. And, and we're so far behind building out the big elements and rudiment elements of, of our system. That's where we need to focus right now. But you look at cities like Houston, who's, who's ahead of us, and where we need to be. So that in five years, and 10 years, we're getting a lot more fine in our controls. So we can better deal with and adjust and impact the number of people that fall into homelessness by identifying who those people are so we can reach them two years before, before they are going to get there so that they never get there. And those are the kinds of things that in, in preventative care. Preventative and so care and mental health, which Houston is also leading on. Right. Go take a trip to Houston and check it out. That's nice to have an analog so close to home. I know that San Antonio, for example, really leads on water use, for example. So it's cool that, yeah, some of these new systems are being built or have been built in Texas. Let's, um, let's move on a lighter note. Around the office, when we go to dinner, friends, family like to refer to affectionately daddler jokes, adler dad jokes. And uh, I've heard of... <laughs> I've heard a few recently. I mean, you're a father, you're a grandfather. Tell me a couple Dadler jokes. Well, you know, you hate to be put on the spot like that just to come <laughs> up with a joke. But my, my daughter's friends, when she was in college, actually called me Dadler. So it's a name that, that I've gone by. I was out with one of my daughters just the other day, and we were out driving. And I, I, I asked her, I said, tell me which highway in Austin has the best all-around views? Mm. I don't know. Loop 360. <laughs> and her eyes rolled, and, and, and which made me know that I had successfully scored again. <laughs> that's what a, my father would call a Dadler joke. <laughs> that's what my father would call a knee slapper. That was a knee slapper. <laughs> you got any one more for us? So I have, now, I have two now grandchildren, uh, so which has opened up a whole new world to me. But now a significant part of my life is dealing with, with bears that have no teeth. Mm, sorry to hear that. Gummy bears. <laughs> They're so bad. It's Badler jokes. Badler, no, Dadler. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So I want to cl close today with some community submitted questions. And to anyone um, listening, you can um, submit questions to us as well. The first question is from Twitter. Ash in Tex asks... How many homeless are estimated to be in Austin? Is it still 2,700? Well, this is one of those things where there are lots of different numbers and mm. they're all right, it, it, it all correct. It all depends on what you're talking about. 
So on any given night, our last census told us that we had about 2,700 people that were experiencing homelessness on that given night. Mm -hmm. Now, we probably didn't find them all because they were in the woods and Mm -hmm. in our streams, and it's just hard to to have volunteers that are going around to find everybody. So probably it's more than the 2,700. About half of them unsheltered and about half of them having Mm -hmm. shelter. At the same time, that was just a given night. Over the course of the year, there are probably seven, 8,000 people that intersect with our homelessness support system in our city. Mm. And there might be someone who is not homeless, experiencing homelessness on January 1st, and it happens to them on March 31st. And by August, they're back into a home. Depending on where you count during the year, you may catch them, you may not. But the seven, 8,000 that are intersecting with our system, probably not everybody, because we probably have other people that are sofa surfing, that are sleeping in their cars, maybe we don't catch. So the actual number of people experiencing homelessness in our city, no one really knows, could be as high as 10, 12,000 people. And that's a, it's a sad and an almost unfathomable number on one hand that we have to pause on. But it's also, I think, less than I would have guessed had I not already known the number. And I think we, it's a doable number, and it's still a little bit of a moonshot to solve it in a systematic way that has never been done before, but it's do- totally doable. We're not yet, per Garcetti's point, to the volumes at which we're unable to catch up. There's a limited time-only opportunity to put stuff in place. Especially in the city like Austin, Texas, that is doing as well as we are. One of the hottest economies in the country, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. If anybody ought to be able to do, if anybody has the responsibility to actually do it, it would be us. And and, and Josh, the other thing that's associated with that conversation, I think people know is we actually know what to do and we know what works. So we were one of a handful of cities to reach what the federal government called functional zero in veterans homelessness. I remember that, and it was a big deal, and it was a big campaign, and I was so proud of it, and it was a big deal for you too. And it was a great thing. All we need to do now is actually scale what it was that worked then. Mm. We're all, we have almost taken all of the children in our city that are on our streets experiencing homelessness off our streets. We know how to do this. The question is, is it important enough for us to scale the efforts to do it? I love that point. And it's a great one that we've solved this for one particular population. We know the solution works. We learn from the experience and we just need to take it you know, upwards. We need to draw its conclusions and put it in other places. We need to do what you do when you scale, which is document and systematize and repeat over and over again. That's what we need to do. And I think that now is a time because, frankly, while the challenge of homelessness was with us three years ago and four years ago and five years ago, and while I started going to neighborhood associations back then all over the city, and this is all they wanted to talk about, most of the city hadn't engaged on this issue yet. You can't find anybody in our city not engaged on this issue. No, now. we're all paying attention. In fact, our next question came in through email. And it the question is, in light of the possibility that the old laws related to homelessness might be reinstated with the May election, what, what we're facing the Prop B here, what... Talk to us about the basic or underlying reasoning behind lifting the camping ban back in 2009, because that's the moment where we stopped sweeping it under the rug. And I don't think that 
hardly any of the city was paying attention to that issue at that time. And it wasn't until after the ban that was lifted that it became such a obvious visceral issue. So talk to us a little bit about like, why did we lift the ban in the first place? I think we lifted the ban in the first place in part because there was a growing realization that what we were doing was just wrong. When we were looking at the possibility of putting people in jail because they didn't have a home, it's just wrong. So at some point you say, I can't be part of a system that that, that does that. We also had an increasing number of courts that were saying you can't criminalize homelessness unless you have a place for everybody to go. We clearly didn't have a place for everybody to go. So we would have anticipated that the lawsuit that, like in Boise, where this was found to be the case, and, and the case established the, the law again in Houston, you can't have a law that says you can't camp in places if there's not a place for people to go. In Houston, as you have more and more places for people to go, you can start closing more and more places because then you have an answer to the question. There's always a place for someone to go. We have to do a better job of managing shared public spaces in our city. We shouldn't have people that are camping in parks. And frankly, it's illegal right now in our city. We shouldn't have people camping in gazebos. We shouldn't have people camping at Texas turnarounds where they're close to traffic. Those are all in our laws right now. The question is, how do you actually enforce those laws? And to pick somebody up and put them in jail because you don't have a better place to be is our failing. And it's something that as a community, we need to fix. We also know that we're now able to get medical care to people better than we were in the past because we can find them. And, and if we identify someone that needs help on this day, we have a reasonable assurance that a month from now we can find them again because we know where it is that they live. So the ability to be able to work with people and, and to try to line people up for, for housing exits, all things that are now working better than they were working before. And I have had at least a dozen women come up to me because I am out in, in camps and in areas a lot to come up to me and say, thank you and thank the city of Austin and then describe to me what their life was like when they were alone and hidden and in our woods. And it's just horrific. I, mm. I, have, I have three girls, uh, Diane. I just can't send those women back to where they were and what they were experiencing. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. But beyond that, I, will, I hasten to add, we're not doing it well. Right. And we need to do it better. And, and that's what I think we're positioned to do now. I did not appreciate the legal side of that in Boise or elsewhere, where increasingly the courts were ruling that enforcing these laws was I illegal. That's new to me. And sometimes I love it when you're my lawyer in chief every once in a while, too. I learn a thing or two. Thank you. This has been a lively and informative discussion. Thank you for inviting me to host your first ever podcast, too. Tell me something good. What's something good that's happening this week? Give me some good news, Steve Adler. We are well to the soccer season here with Austin FC. We're actually taping this before the first game on on Saturday. We are. But when this starts playing next week, we'll be well into the to the season. I'm just real excited about Austin having a having a soccer team and getting to know the players and having everybody in the city from any walk of life all wearing the same colors, same jerseys, all with the same vocabulary, all rooting on the same thing. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the discussion that the city and the county are going to be having this week with respect to what we do with that federal yep. uh, funding dollars. And then Earth Day is on uh, Thursday, April 22nd. That is core to our values in this city.
It underlies uh, so much of what we do in this city. We are such a, a world leader among cities on climate change mitigation. It's, it's what we do with our power company and why it's so important that we own it. The vote the voters took to get us toward more public transportation last year and out of cars. But anyhow, the celebration for that day. <laughs> Earth Day is an extra big deal in Austin. It's an extra big day, and I've always loved that. For, and I can't wait for soccer to start. I think you're totally right. It's, it's a sport for the whole city, and it's going to be a celebration. And I think it's like kind of something we need to just cheer and yell at the TV and rejoice when we score. And I think there's just some emotional opportunity there that'd be good for everybody. We want to hear from you. We want everybody to, to participate in this, this podcast. Submit your questions for next week, steve.adler at austintexas.gov or on Twitter at Mayor Adler. Follow Walk With Me Austin on Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever it is that you get your uh, podcasts. We are all in this together. See you next week.